We are reading from Joshua chapter 6 tonight, verses 1 to 7 and 15 to 27. This is God's word. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went in and none, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march round the city, all the men of war going round the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march round the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march round the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the peoples shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. We've been working through the, the book of Joshua. <clears throat> it's part of our series called Taking Possession. And uh, we come to chapter six tonight, and it's sort of uh, the bit, I think, that the first five chapters have been pointing towards. Um, I was watching TV 
this, this week past, the evening news. And it's a bad idea, I think, to watch the TV and watch the evening news the last thing you do before you go to bed, because I just find it so depressing. Um, and I, and I, I remember turning to Marion, I think it was Thursday or maybe Friday, and I said to Marion, look, is it me? Or are things just getting worse and worse? Like, I never remember it being this bad 10 years ago, or maybe even 20 years ago, when I was still watching TV as a kid. And, and, and just a summary of the kind of things that were on the news on Sunday, uh, fears about Brexit uh, topped the, uh, the agenda on the BBC. Then we went to the fires in Greece, killing all those people you know, who live next to the, the sea. Then the floods in Laos that we were just praying for, that great um, hydroelectric dam that burst, and all these people drowned and lost family. Then we had the Scottish Football Association uh, issuing an apology for child um, you know, abuse over the years, historic child abuse cases and how this was not dealt with at all well. And then the local news, we had the issues with uh, Muckamore Children's Centre and the, the, the sort of suspected abuse that's happened there and the culture that's sort of arisen around that place. And then someone was shot dead in North Belfast just to cap things off. Just feels so depressing when you listen to the news and just ask myself all the time, are things getting worse or has it maybe just always been bad? It's just... We are more aware of it now. Who knows? Maybe you, you have a similar sort of feeling when you read the paper or even flash up the news on your phone. Perhaps you're like me, though. Perhaps you're just not happy that things are like they are and, and you crave for something greater, something better, some kind of life where these things are not so. That the, the people don't drown in their beds one night or the people aren't shot in our city. But the good thing about this passage that we're just starting to peer into today and this the series through the book of Joshua shows us that we have reason to hope. God is establishing here in, in, in this chapter, and we'll see this throughout the scripture, God is establishing a, a new society. Something that is an alternative, a, a wonderful alternative to the brokenness and the hurt and the, and the, and the suffering that we see on a daily basis. God is establishing, and we see this in this text, a new society that is founded on justice, number one, that is characterized by mercy, number two, and is established on victory, number three. Justice, mercy, and victory. So let's look at each of those in turn. Let me just try and explain to you why this is good news. So number one, justice. The new society that God is setting up is established on justice. Everything has been leading up to this point. Even last week when we saw that the people of Israel, hundreds or probably thousands of them, crossed over the River Jordan, everything is leading up to this point. They have started, as of now, to take possession of the promised land, this land that God promised many centuries ago to Abraham, their great-grandfather, if you like. Look down at verse 2. It says, The Lord here says to Joshua, I have given Jericho into your hands with its king and its mighty men of valor. And then verses three through to seven show us, or tells us how God wants it to happen. In the center of all this behavior is the ark of God. And again, we, we, we sort of looked at this a couple, uh, a couple of weeks ago. The ark of God, the ark of the covenant is an ornate box that the Israelites had. It symbolized the very presence of God, a visual representation of the presence of God. It was in the center of their tabernacle. It was in the center of their community. And so the priests were to pick up the ark. They were to um, 
go around the city of Jericho. In front of them were to be seven more priests with trumpets, blowing their trumpets. And in front of them still is to be the army, armed men. And away at the back as well, armed men. And so this whole group with the ark in the center was to circle around the city of Jericho. Now, some Bible scholars estimate it wasn't actually that big. It's about 600 meters perimeter. And so round they go on day one, one lap. No one says anything. The only thing you can hear is the blowing of the trumpets. And then again on day two and again on day three, right up to day seven. And on day seven, it says it's go around the city seven times. And on the last time, on the seventh time, everyone is to shout. Everyone is to issue a war cry. And at that moment, God says, the walls shall fall down. That's how it's going to go down. So in verse 20, we see that the people obeyed. They did exactly that. Over seven days, on the seventh time, they issued a, a cry, and the walls fell flat down. And it says that all the people who were sort of around the city walls, all the armed men, just simply walked over and into the city and captured it straight in. Verse 21, it says it devoted, they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. A resounding victory. And this victory, you could probably imagine from Israel's perspective, was a great victory. But, but, Let's just think about it from our own perspective for a few moments. Many people, whether, whether they are believers in Jesus or not, whether they've been brought up in the church or not, will come to a passage like that and react very differently to the ancient Israelites. You might have a bit of a sick feeling in your stomach. Is that really true, what I'm reading? Kind of troubling that God commands the destruction of an entire city. Men, we, we, we assume, women, we assume, and children and, and animals put to the edge of the sword. And, and, and if you're brought up in a, in a Christian uh, background from a church environment, folks, we, we can't be blind to these kind of things we read in the Bible. Because many people outside the church and a lot inside will read this and, and think, this is, this is terrible. How? How can a God that we sing about and is supposed to be a God of love, how can he command the destruction of an entire city like that? Richard Dawkins, well-known atheist, he's a scientist, he's a writer. He's famously quoted as saying this about the God of the Old Testament. Richard Dawkins says, and I quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. That's what Dawkins thinks of the God of the Old Testament. Goodness knows what he thinks of the God of the New Testament. Now look, that might be a very excessive statement that I've just read out to you, but Dawkins hits on a popular criticism that many people have about these difficult Old Testament passages. You may not put it in that way yourself, but maybe it stirs up a similar question, a sentiment. 
And so as we are committed in, in Foundation Church to reading the Bible and to taking each passage as it comes, we, we cannot skirt around these issues. We can't attempt to cover them up or just ignore them or take a set of scissors to the Bible and chop out the bits that we just find uncomfortable and awkward because we're just not given that liberty by God. Some Christians try and explain it away. They say, well, Joshua just misheard God and Joshua went ahead and did this and God didn't really intend that to happen. Others say, no, 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 that's just a a spiritual story. It didn't really happen. But for those of us who take the Bible at face value and, 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 and as it says here in front of us, we can't afford to cover up some of these issues. So let me just try and offer you this evening a, a framework, a very brief framework about how we could uh, think about these passages as we come through as believers in Jesus, as those who take the Bible seriously. What can we say when we come to passages like this? Five things. I'm just going to go over them real quick. If you've got any questions at the end, please come and let me know. Number one, when we come to a passage like this, we have to realize, first of all, that the Canaanites, or the people who lived in Jericho, they were not morally innocent. Different scriptures in the Old Testament, other ancient texts outside the Bible, point to the fact that brutality and oppression were well known among the ancient peoples of of Canaan. Temple prostitution, bless you, child sacrifice, All of these things were part and parcel of the brutality of life in the ancient Near East. So number one, the Canaanites were not morally innocent. Second spindle of the framework. Number two, what we see here, this command from God to go into this city and completely destroy it, putting everyone to the sword, was not a universal tactic given to Israel. This was something that God commanded for a very limited time, entry into the promised land. We don't see later writings in the, New, in, in the Old Testament or reflections in the New Testament continue to affirm this behavior. This was intended for a limited time in the history of Israel. Number three, this practice of total destruction was not limited to Israel. In fact, we read in extra-biblical sources that it wasn't only used by Israel. This was part of war convention in the ancient Near East. It doesn't make it any better. It just means that everybody, every nation trying to destroy another nation, used a similar tactic, complete destruction. Number four, Israel, the people of Israel, were not immune themselves from a similar treatment from other nations. Later on in the scriptures, as we go forward, we see that God uses the Assyrian nation, he uses the Babylonian nation to bring similar suffering and justice and discipline on his own people. Israel themselves were not immune. Fifthly and finally, this is not what is commonly known as ethnic cleansing. And we'll see why a bit later on. I don't know if you picked it up in verse 18, when, when God, through the leader Joshua, says, you know, I want you to devote all these things to destruction. Why is that? Otherwise, if you don't, God says, and you take some of these devoted things into the camp of Israel, you'll bring trouble on it and yourself. The issue here is that if the practices, if the behaviors, if the riches of these pagan nations are bought into Israel... 
the hearts of the people of Israel will turn away from God and will go in the other direction. So five things. I know I went through them really quickly. I'm very happy to elaborate later. But they help us to understand what we're reading when we come to these difficult passages. But we have to be honest, there are some brutal and some difficult passages in the Bible. But that's where it helps folks to look at the scriptures from the bigger picture. Otherwise, we'll, we'll do a Richard Dawkins. We'll just look at these little sections and we'll think that God is just like that all the time. Dawkins doesn't care, folks, about the big picture of the Bible. When you read and look for the big picture, you see this great quote I'm just going to give you now from Exodus 34. Before all this total destruction stuff, the Lord, this is God, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations and forgiving transgressions and sins, but will no, by no means clear the guilty. This is the kind of God, folks, that we're dealing with right here. And this mighty statement that we've just read here became a foundational text in Hebrew scriptures. It became part of their reflection in their prayers, in their songs. God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So when we look at the big picture, we realize God is love. God is faithful. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. Doesn't mean he doesn't get angry. Just means he is incredibly patient and slow to anger. On balance, thousands of generations will be blessed by him, but he will by no means clear the guilty. What is this big picture teaching us about God? What is this scripture that we're reading today teaching us about God? It is teaching us that God hates evil. He hates injustice. He hates sin and oppression and he will actively work against it. See, much of our questioning when we come to these difficult passages in scripture, much of our questioning reveals more of us sometimes than it does of what we're reading. Often you and I and most people I'd say most people like us will come to the Bible, obviously as 21st century people, with a fairly sanitized view of the Bible. We come often as, as what, what people refer to as dispassionate observers. You know, we're sort of disconnected from what we're reading. We're just looking in from above. But often the way we read the Bible reveals that for many of us, we're comfortable, middle-class, white, Western people, and we read the Bible in such a way that reveals that. If anything, when we come to scriptures like this, it can expose our cultural blindness. But I wonder, if you were reading this as an oppressed people group living in Laos, I bet you that you would see things slightly differently. Readers from other non-Western countries will no doubt see things very differently. What if you were a victim of injustice? in the country where you live? What if you were born and brought up and knew nothing more than an oppressive society and you read a scripture like this? Even us here gathered this evening, what if terrible evil has been done to you in some form or other? 
wouldn't you desire justice to come? Wouldn't you want a response to the evil that has been done to you? Or the evil that you see on your TV? You don't want a God who turns a blind eye to that kind of injustice and evil. But don't you want a God who repays the guilty for what they've done? You see here in this, in this text so far, a God who is a God of justice. And he is creating, through Joshua chapter 6, he is creating a just society. A place where evil is destroyed completely. But as we see, justice comes at a cost. There will be blood. First of all, we see that God is establishing a new society based on justice. Secondly, we see, number two, God is establishing a new society based on mercy. Love this bit. I think it's right that we question these difficult scriptures and ask what's going on. But there is, folks, there is so much more to this story than just those difficult passages there, as difficult as they are. I love this. Stunning mercy. Radiant mercy is shown by God. Look down at verse 17. Joshua says just before he stirs the troops for their final you know, day of, of lapping around the city, he says in verse 17, we're going to destroy everything in the city. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. We covered this text a few weeks ago in this series, but just to give you a bit of a, a reminder, uh, Joshua sent a couple of spies across to Jericho, almost for like a military recce to see what kind of people they are, where are their weaknesses, how can we overcome them by our army, and they ended up in the house of this prostitute. She uh, hid them from uh, the authorities within the city. She could have grasped them up, but instead she said, no, 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 I fear your God way more. I fear Yahweh. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And I know the way this is going down, said Rahab to these two spies. I know he's given this city into your hands. And so she hid them, and they were safe. She knew the score, and she said, because I've hidden you, will you show me mercy when you come and take this city? Rahab was a, a pagan from Jericho. She was part of the cultural fabric of the city. She wasn't exactly perfect. Far from it. But we see here when the walls came down, she was saved alive and her entire family was, was delivered. And in verse 25, I love this bit. It says she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers that Joshua sent to spy them out. Not only was she delivered and saved from being destroyed along with everybody else in the city, she was taken into God's covenant people. She became one of them. She inherited the covenant promises. I love that. See, we can see here in this little story of Rahab, the story within the story, and across the Old Testament, we can see that God is willing to save those who don't deserve it. It's just a brilliant contrast to the horror of the destruction that goes on in Jericho. You see, even in this narrative, in this story we're reading, God is nothing like the one that Dawkins is talking about. Yes, he's a God of justice, even severe judgment, 
but he's also a God of mercy. Rahab believed and she was spared. And this applies to others as well. God was willing to save the city, the evil city of Sodom, for the presence of ten righteous people. The entire city of Nineveh was spared certain judgment when they turned around and repented and came to God. God is just, but he is also merciful. And he delivers all who come to faith. There is no one in the whole Bible who ever comes to God for mercy and gets turned away. Anyone who comes to him can be saved, will be saved. Before we move on, I just want to say, note, this is not a war about race or ethnicity. Rahab is most definitely a non-Israelite. And yet she has shown mercy and she is incorporated into the people of God. See, what we're seeing here is the, the early seeds of God building this perfected, just society. And it's open, as we see here, to all ethnic groups. It's open to everyone, irrespective of their nationality, of their ethnicity. And even in this little story of mercy, we see a hint of this great promise God made to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And we can start to see that take shape through the inclusion of Rahab. So you see God establishing a new society, a new realm being set up, one defined by justice, but one defined by mercy, inclusive of all types of people, all nationalities, all backgrounds, everyone living and enjoying God's mercy and kindness, his blessing and his justice. Sounds good to me. Thirdly and finally, this new society that God is setting up here shall be established upon victory. Victory. That, that is the, surely the standout point in this entire chapter. God wins. And even in the, in the, in the very graphic and symbolic circling of the ark around this fortified city, the city shut up and sealed against the people of Israel. We have the presence of God moving around the city. There's no fighting that takes place. There's no siege works that are built. There's no destruction of the, the, the city gates. Just a loud shout from the army. That's all it took. And it says the walls fell flat and they captured the city. The enemy was overwhelmed. Israel just simply hopped over the wall and they reaped the benefits and here we see in Joshua 6 Israel start to take possession of the promised land they start taking possession of the covenant promises that God gave to them that I'm going to give you a home I'm going to establish a new society and, and you can live in it and you can experience the justice and the mercy and the peace and the victory over all your enemies that's what he's doing here in Joshua 6 But this sets up a question for us, at least it sets up a question for me as I'm sitting watching the TV news and just getting depressed before I go to bed. Is this society that God is setting up, is it for now? Or is it just a historical thing? 
given to the people of Israel, claiming the promised land thousands of years ago? Or is this for us today? Is there hope for us today? Well, when we fast forward throughout the Bible and we get to the end of the Bible, we see that the Bible closes with a captivating vision of this new society. The thing that was getting planted here comes to fulfillment at the end of the Bible. A captivating vision, a perfect and just society for all people, a place of freedom where justice reigns, where evil is totally destroyed, not even a hint. And according to the Bible, this new society of God is open to all. It really is available now and you really can possess it. Jesus and the apostles, when they came along, they preached that this future society, this, this great vision, is more than a future hope of something that will happen. They preached that God's new society is breaking in now. Jesus got up and preached at the start of his ministry and he said, listen, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What he was saying was that future realm is, is, is beginning to take hold now. It is starting to make itself felt now. It is breaking in today. And Jesus came to announce this coming kingdom. He came to give evidence and demonstrate that it was among the people. And he came to open it up so that all people can come into that kingdom. Let's just get, let's get real uh, for a second. Let's get honest, shall we, for a few moments. It is good, it is good to question the Bible, but it is far better to allow it to question us. So let's get real for a second. Maybe in some strange way, you can identify with the Canaanites. We might be guilty in some form or other of injustice, of treating others oppressively, even brutally. That's what injustice is ultimately, isn't it? That's what oppression is rather. It's using other people to achieve what we want and we'll do anything we like to get what we want. That's what oppression is. Rather than helping people flourish, we just see them as a means to our ends. That might happen in everyday forms of injustice. Maybe you've used other people to climb up the career ladder. Maybe you use other people in your unjust business practices to get ahead, just to make yourself more money. And so you kick others to the dust and you just step over them to get where you want to be. Perhaps even in more direct ways, you have acted unjustly by causing direct harm or injury to other people. In thought or word or deed, you have manipulated and controlled them to your own ends. 
Maybe you identify in some way or other with the Canaanites. Perhaps that's not you at all. Maybe on balance you identify more with Rahab. You are imperfect and you know it. You feel it. No one needs to tell you about the bad things that you've done in your life. You know beyond all people that you don't match up. You feel ashamed before God and completely undeserving of his help. Yet perhaps like Rahab, you realize, maybe for the first time today, that you are in need of God's mercy and that you just simply cannot know life without God. Maybe like her, you are desperate for help. Thirdly and finally, perhaps you, through reading this and thinking this through, identify more clearly with the Israelites. You know that somehow or other, perhaps if you're a person of faith, you know that somehow or other you should be living a victorious life. Living victoriously. You think you're doing all the right things. Living a certain way, reading the right books, doing certain practices to secure God's blessings. And you should be feeling victorious, but perhaps you just feel want, like you're left wanting. Defeated. Defeated by your sins that you thought you could overcome. Defeated by the thoughts that keep coming into your mind. You feel you should be victorious, and yet you feel anything but. Folks, Jesus is clear that the only way we can enter into this new society, this beautiful new society that God is establishing, is through him. It's through the gospel. You see, in the, the central part of the gospel, the good news, Jesus is taken, and he receives the full force of God's justice when he took our sins to the cross. All of us deserve God's justice. We deserve to be like the people of Jericho. And yet Jesus became our substitute. It was him in our place. And so in the gospel, Jesus got the justice that we deserved. Jericho was just a small taste of the full force of justice that Jesus took on the cross. In the gospel, we receive mercy. When we see Christ, when we see what he did, when we believe it was for us, then we are covered, we are protected, we receive mercy like Rahab. We don't deserve it, and yet we receive God's mercy through faith in Jesus. And thirdly, in the gospel, we experience victory. When Jesus died on the cross, we were singing it a few moments ago, right then, at the moment that seemed to be his greatest weakness, the Bible tells us Jesus triumphed over powers and authorities, putting them to open shame on the cross. See, in the cross and the resurrection, Jesus demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that he rules victoriously over all powers and authorities. And so, folks, when you see and receive and embrace the gospel of Jesus, this justice, this mercy, and this victory is applied to you through Jesus. 
And when you get that, and when, when you understand what he's done, then you start to express those values yourself. When you start to become changed because of the work of Jesus, when you accept him, then you start to express the values of the new society. You will start to develop a, a greater concern for justice. You'll start to ask yourselves and ask one another, how can I live more righteously? What does that look like in my life to act justly? How can I, as a person in the 21st century, be against injustice? You'll start asking questions like that when you see what God has done for you. You'll start to act mercifully to those who do not deserve your favour. Whether that's in personal relationships, whether that's in serving the poor, people you don't have a you know, direct connection with, you will start to think, how can I show mercy and grace to those who don't deserve it, even in your own personal relationships? How can I forgive? How can I demonstrate that forgiveness? How can I be reconciled? You'll start to think like that. And thirdly and finally, when you see the gospel, when you receive it into your heart, you'll start anticipating and enjoying that victory that you have through Jesus. Jesus is above every power and authority. And when you trust him, so therefore are you. You may not feel like it, but that's the spiritual reality of when you trust. God's victory in Christ becomes your victory. You may see gifts, you may see signs, you may see God's victory in the ordinary, you may see God's victory in the extraordinary manifestations. You will pray with boldness and confidence when you start to get this. That's why what we do at Christians Against Poverty and that's what, what we do with International Justice Mission is not just keeping us busy until this great society eventually appears. This is the real thing. When we're engaging with CAP and other similar ministries, this is God's society of justice and mercy and victory breaking in now. And we get to be a part of that. We get to see it take place in this room. The more that we see and appreciate and enjoy the gospel, the more deeply, visibly, tangibly, these values will be expressed in our lives, in our church, and in our city. Let's pray.